So today's passage is the final answer to a question that has been appearing time and time again in the Gospel of Luke. And that question is this. Who is this man, Jesus? Who is this guy? Who is this man that has the authority to command the winds and the waters that they would obey it? That, that he, he stands before demons and the demons fear and fall at his feet because they're so afraid. Who is this man who is able to heal the sick, who has authority to, to restore the broken, to cleanse the unclean? Who is this man who has the authority to even bring back the dead to life? Those are things that we've been looking at in the Gospel of Luke. And so this question, who is this man, Jesus, that's been the lingering question that Luke has been trying to answer in his Gospel. And you kind of see all these different reactions from different people. Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say I am? And they say, well, some say that you're John the Baptist who died um, from, from King Herod. Some say that you're, you're Elijah. Some say that you're one of the prophets. Something is different about you, but... No one seems to understand who you are. And then Jesus asked the question to his disciples, who do you say I am? And Peter, he says, well, Jesus, you are Christ, the Christ of God. That's who you are. Jesus, you are the Messiah. The word Christ is the transliteration of the word Messiah in the Old Testament, which means anointed one. In other words, you're it. You're the one we've been waiting for. You're the one who's supposed to come and and change everything, who's going to fill all the promises of God. You're the one who's going to come and make our lives better, redeem God's people. You're the one who's going to establish an everlasting kingdom, finally free us from the oppression of the Roman Empire. You're the one, Jesus. Like, you're it. And Jesus hears this, this answer, and he's like, man, Peter, like, this is not something that was revealed to you inside, but it was revealed to you from heaven And then he begins to reveal his master plan. He says, okay, now that you understand who I am, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to the cross, I'm going to die, and I'm going to rise on the third day. That's what I'm going to do. It says in verse 22, as a Christ, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to be rejected, I'm going to be killed, and I'm going to be raised on the third day. And this is so outrageous. This is so shocking to the disciples. It says in the Gospel of Mark, actually, in this moment, Peter, he sets Jesus aside. It literally says that Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke Jesus. Like, you never see this. Like, the disciple rebuking Jesus. It's like, man, Jesus, are you out of your mind? Like, we have these men who are following you to the very end. Like, we followed you because we thought you were it. And you said you are it. Like you're the Messiah, you're the promised one. And, and your plan is to, to be rejected. Your plan is to suffer. Your plan is to actually go to the cross and die. That's your plan. And hearing this, Jesus says, well, Peter, get behind me, Satan. Like, you don't understand what you're saying. So Jesus reveals his, his shocking plan. But it's not just his plan that's shocking. He reveals his plan for the disciples. He also says, well, by the way, um, I'm not the only one dying. I want you to deny yourself, take up your own cross daily, and follow me. In other words, as as I'm going to go to die on the cross, I want you to die to yourself on a daily basis. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to die, and so will you. 
you know, you can imagine just the confusion and just, just the, 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 the thoughts that were going through the disciples' minds at this point. This is not what I signed up for. Like people, they left their families, they left their belongings, they left their careers to follow Jesus. And after months of following Jesus, Jesus, this is what you're going to do. That you're going to reveal to us that you're about to leave us, go to the cross and, and die like that. Like this is not what I signed up for. And a lot of times when you live the Christian life, this is how you feel about following Jesus. Initially, you think, well, if I make a commitment to Jesus, if I follow Jesus, life is going to be good. It's going to be great. Things are going to be smooth. Things are going to work out in my life. I'm going to meet the right people. I'm going to be at the right place, have a good career. And it seems like things are working out when, when life is easy. But when you face suffering, when you face opposition, the more and more you want to live like Christ, the more and more you realize the world hates you. The more and more you're realizing that there's tension between you and the world because there's tension between Jesus and the world. Like, you want to talk about Jesus, and people are saying, like, why are you talking about a guy who lived, like, 2,000 years ago? Why do you care about what he says, what's right and what's wrong in his eyes? Like, you have the right to decide what's right and wrong in your eyes. Like, a lot of times, like, because you believe in Jesus, because you believe in certain things, you are mistreated, you are mocked for your faith, you are considered unintelligent, that you are detached from reality, that you're not scientific enough to, to believe all these different things. Sometimes, you know, it's, it's the life of Jesus that we're pursuing that brings hardships, right? As you're following Jesus, you feel like as a student, man, I feel like I have to live in honesty. I can't cheat, but everyone else is cheating. Like in, 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 in my classroom, I literally felt like this when I went to college. I remember our classroom was filled with about two, 200 people. It was a chemistry class. And you, when I'm taking an exam from the back, you see literally people cheating. And I'm thinking to myself, God, how do I beat that? Like, like how do I, like, I just work so hard, but it feels like just I'm getting ripped off at this moment. Like, I'm just, I'm just taking the, 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 the raw end of things. And that's how you feel like a lot of times when you're trying to live with integrity at your workplace. Like, your coworkers are trying to produce results no matter what it takes. As a business person, you're trying to produce sales, even regardless of, of what it might cost uh, you when it comes to your moralities. Like, following Jesus makes you sometimes you know, wonder if you should compromise your faith. Sometimes we feel like because we keep the Sabbath holy, because we are so invested in this church community, that we are missing out on all the great things that this world has to offer. And the question that comes to us time and time again is this, is it really worth following? Is it really worth denying yourself? Is it really worth taking up your cross daily? Is it really I understand down the road at the end, yeah, it's going to be worth the cost. But right now, really, I'm struggling to see whether or not it's really worth it. Especially when, Jesus, you're saying that you're going to go to the cross and you want me to go as well. So this is where the disciples are at. They're confused. They're deeply disappointed um, they don't know where things are going to go at this point because, you know, they know the identity of Jesus. They just can't comprehend the plans of Jesus. And this is where we come to the passage, one of the most glorious passages in all the Bible, the transfiguration. Uh, and I get that word from Matthew and Mark. It says in today's passage in verse 28, now about eight days after these sayings. That's quite important because Luke, unlike the other gospel writers, he never puts a timestamp like this. 
Like he, for him, it's more like event after event after event. Mark is more like, hey, this happened immediately after this. This happened immediately after this. This happened. But Luke, he's not really too big on time. But he's intentionally connecting what Jesus has said right before this passage to what's going to happen in today's uh, story. So the transfiguration is deeply connected to Jesus' revealing of his plan to die on the cross and his call to this radical discipleship. It says in verse 28, Now about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the inner circle, and he goes up to this mountain and he reveals to them a glimpse of his glory. It says in verse 29, As he, Jesus, was praying, the appearance of his face was altered. And it's not like he had makeup on, right? Sometimes I see on YouTube, like, some of these makeup artists and literally, like, before and after photos, like, like this is a whole new person. Like, no makeup involved, but just his, his appearance, physical appearance was completely different to the point where Matthew and Mark, when they record about this event, they use the word transfigured. And that's the word metamorpho in Greek where we get the word metamorphism. Meta means change. Morphism means form. When a caterpillar turns into a butterfly, we would call that a metamorphism. Uh, and so what we see is Jesus, he's, he's changing. It's, it's, it's something that's not just weird, but it's glorious. That he's revealing a, a new side of himself to the disciples. And, and so what's this transfiguration all about? What was so different about Jesus? First of all, his clothing was different. It says in verse 29, his clothing became dazzling white dazzling white. It says in Mark 9.3, talking about the same incident, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. In other words, you can buy all the bleach that exists in Target, Walmart, bring them all together, put clothes into, white clothes into those bleaches, and still you wouldn't get the the brightness of Jesus' clothing. Like his clothes were so bright and pure and clean that there wasn't a single person who can bleach clothes like this. It was so white. And this is a big deal because in the Bible, when you see white clothing, it's talking about holiness and purity. It's a sign that Jesus, he is absolutely holy and absolutely pure. The fact that his, his whiteness, his white clothing cannot be attained from this world tells you that his holiness and his purities is not of this world. It's very different. It's not man-made. It's not something that we can achieve just based on uh, good works, but it's made in heaven. His holiness, his righteousness, his pureness, it's something that's obtained in heaven. I'm sure that if you looked at Jesus' garment at this point, it would have said, you know, made in heaven. Uh, But it gets even better because in Matthew 17 too, Matthew records the same incident, and he says, as he, Jesus, was transfigured before them, His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. So bright to the point that his clothes were bright as light. Now, this is a big deal, especially for Matthew, because he's writing to mainly a Jewish audience. And and the Jews, they, they, they would recognize this reference, because in Psalm 104, verse 1 and 2, it says this, Blessed the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment. So who wears light? Who has clothing 
that is made with light. For the Jews, that's, there's only one person. It's God. God is the one that dwells in, in, in his splendor, his majesty, that his garment is, is light. And so when Matthew says, when Jesus, when he transfigured and his, his, his clothing was so bright, like it was light, he's telling us that Jesus, that he's God. This is something that we, we looked at, you know, throughout the Gospel of Luke. But once again, once again, Luke is reminding us that, that Jesus is not just a man of flesh, but he is God in the flesh. Like, he, he's not just a mere man who's doing good things, but he's actually divine. In Colossians 2.9, this is why it says, In Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Now, this is a mystery. How can God perfectly be God and perfectly be man? No, that's a mystery to us. What the Bible does communicate to us is this, that although Jesus looked like a man, talked like a man, acted like a man, in his flesh, the fullness of deity, the fullness of God dwelt. And why is this important? Jesus is reminding his disciples, I know the future doesn't look that great. I know the road ahead looks pretty bumpy and and rocky, I know it's going to be tough when you see me suffer, when you see me rejected, when you see me go to the cross, and, and when you see me die, but I'm still God. Like, I don't know where you are today, what kind of situation you're in, but I think Jesus wants to remind us today that he is God, and he is worth your trust, that you can trust him, not just who he is, but even his plan. So, the disciples, they get, a, they get a taste of the glory of, of Jesus in today's passage. And this is also an act of grace because instead of rebuking the disciples for having little faith, instead of abandoning disciples, saying that, hey, man, I got to work with some other guys who kind of get the message. Jesus is gracious and patient enough to reveal to the disciples a glimpse of his glory. And so the first point I want to make is this. Jesus reveals his glory to remind us that he is still God. Jesus reveals his glory to remind us that he is still God. But another thing that he reveals in today's passage is his plan. So the second point is this. Jesus reveals his plan to remind us that he came to save us. Jesus reveals his plan to remind us that he came to save us. Now, as Jesus is is dwelling in his glory, what we see is there is two figures Elijah and Moses that enter into the scene. And these are two prominent Old Testament figures. These are not just a couple of names in the Old Testament. But if there was a Mount Rushmore in the Old Testament, these two would be part of that, that, that Mount Rushmore. You kind of have, you have to put Abraham because he's the father of faith. You probably have to put King David because he was the greatest king. But the other two spots, I'm putting Elijah and I'm putting Moses. The great leader, Moses, who led God's people out of slavery, out of Egypt. The great prophet, uh, Elijah, who, who did not taste death. He was taken away from God, by God. Like, he, he never tasted death. And, and scripture says that he was going to return to prepare the way of the Lord. And so you see Moses and Elijah, it says in verse 30, these two men were talking with Jesus. And verse 31, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, this is so interesting because the word departure, if you have your Bible, there's probably a footnote there. I don't know if you knew this, but Bible in your Bible, you have footnotes. 
Those were not part of the original text, but those are put in uh, to help your understanding by the translators. But there's a footnote on the word departure in verse 31, and it says probably in Greek, it's the word exodus. Departure means exodus. And why is that a big deal? When we think about the word exodus, we go back to the book of Exodus, how God led his people out of Egypt through the leadership of Moses. Like Moses was the one who led the people like through this exodus to free them from bondage and slavery and oppression, to give them this freedom so that they can freely worship God. And yet in today's passage, as, as Jesus and Elijah and Moses, they're huddled up, they're talking about these different things. They're not talking about the exodus that took place in the past. Notice it says, that in glory they spoke of his departure, his exodus, Jesus' exodus. It's talking about a greater exodus where Jesus is going to accomplish on the cross that he's not just going to save people from Pharaoh, from slavery, but he's going to save people from sin and death. He's going to save people from Satan. And so we see at the moment of the transfiguration, Jesus already has in mind the crucifixion. And that's a big deal, that Jesus is revealing to us not just his glory that, to remind us that he is God, but he's once again reminding us that his plan is to die on the cross, to be the savior for the world. And this is super cool, right? Um, I mean, I don't know about you, like when I was young in my faith, uh, when I was younger, I prayed literally, like every retreat, like every chance that I had, I prayed, God, give me a God moment. I, I, I understand all the stories in the Bible. I kind of see the lessons that 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 been taught in Bible Sunday Bible studies and and but I really want a taste of your glory like I, I want an experience when you just make yourself known to me right and so I'm overwhelmed like that's what I'm missing in my life the only reason why I'm strolling my faith is I have all the knowledge it's not just real in my heart and in order for that to happen I need a God moment like this I mean if God appeared to you today and he, you have Jesus you have Moses Elijah having a conversation, wouldn't you be blown away? Like, wouldn't you be at least, you know, curious of, of why this is happening? Like, that, that would kind of lead you to greater faith. And this is exactly what Peter is experiencing, what we read in today's passages in verse 32. Peter, he wakes up from his nap. Jesus was praying. The disciples were sleeping, it says. They were heavy with sleep. Uh, and so if you doze off during sermons or during prayer gatherings, I, I forgive you. Like, you're not the first one in the Bible to do that. And so, um, but notice that as the disciples are dozing off, they finally were fully awake and they saw his glory, the glory of Jesus and the two men who stood with him. So they wake up, they see this incredible scene where Jesus is in his full glory and you have Moses and Elijah ushering him. And they're having a conversation, like two dead people. Like, how, how cool is that? Like, some of you are thinking, man, this has to be made up. Like, but I'm telling you, like, it's recorded in, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John seems to allude, it, uh, allude to it in, in chapter 1. Peter, later on, he writes about it in, in 2 Peter chapter 1. This is something that was, was pivotal for the disciples. And it says in verse 33, Peter being typical Peter, having no filter. He says this, um, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. Like, I love that, that detail. Like, Peter has no idea what he's saying. He just knows that this moment is too good, 
Like he wants this to continue. It's like the last night of retreat. It's like the last day of missions. He's been so blessed. Like this is an awesome moment that he just wants this to continue. So he says, let me go and make a tent for you, Jesus. And I want Elijah and Moses to stay here as well. So one tent for you, one tent for me. I don't need a tent. I can just hang out and, and listen to your conversation. But what he wants is he wants this party to continue. Like, have you ever had that experience where your life was so good, your experience was so great, you just didn't want to leave that moment? And that's exactly what Peter is going through, a God moment, a moment that, that he doesn't want to leave. And, and it's understandable because no one in the Bible up to this point have, has ever experienced something like this. The closest person uh, that came to this experience was probably Moses in Exodus 33. When Moses, after leading God's people out of Egypt, after departing the Red Sea, after receiving the Ten Commandments, when he is praying before God, like, God says, Moses, what do you want? Like, you've been so faithful. What do you want? And what Moses says is this. He doesn't say, I want to be in the promised land. He doesn't say, well, I just want to be recognized as the greatest prophet. What he says is this. In the midst of all that, Moses says, there's one request that I have. I want to see your face, God. I want to see your glory. I want to get a taste of your your glory. And this is a guy who experienced the burning bush, right? And yet he says, I want to experience your presence. Such a godly man. But what God says to Moses is this. Moses, I'll let my goodness pass before you. You know, I will proclaim my personal name before you. I'm going to be gracious to those who are gracious to you. I'm going to be merciful to those who are merciful to you. That's how special you are to me, Moses. But there's one thing I cannot do. I, I can't let you see my face. I can't let you have a taste of my glory because if that happens, you're going to die. When sinful people stand in the holy, glorious presence of God, that's exactly what happens. It's like you standing in front of the sun. When we stand before an infinite God, as finite beings, we have no chance. And so God says, Moses, I can't do that. Instead, what I'll do is I'll put you in this corner behind the rock. I'm going to put my hand there. I'm going to pass by. And as I pass by, you can peek and you get, get the tail end of my glory. And that's exactly what he experienced. But the crazy thing is he comes down from the mountain and people are recognizing that his face is shining. It's It's glowing. To the point where they are terrified. They are so afraid. And so Moses has to actually put something to cover his face. With that split second of experiencing God's glory, that's, that's the effect that it had on God's people. And yet, what we have in today's passage is Peter is seeing the glory of God in a way that no one has experienced up to this point. The fullness of God's glory. And what we see in verse 34, and then, a cloud came and overshadowed them, just like the cloud covered Mount Sinai. There's a cloud of glory that covers this place. And it says they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And just like God the Father recognized God the Son in baptism, once again, God the Father speaks from heaven. It says in verse 35, and a voice came out of the cloud, just in case the bright lights and, and, and all these things, the clouds weren't enough, right? Now this is kind of the final deal, a voice from heaven, the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. Listen to him. 
God the Father confirming the identity of God the Son and the response that he wants us to take is, listen, follow him. You can trust him. And when all this happened, notice that God the Father, he doesn't have time to recognize Moses. He doesn't have time to recognize Elijah. He doesn't say, by the way, oh man, I'm I'm thankful for you, Moses. I'm thankful for you, Elijah. No, all he cares about is at this point is the Son of God. He cares about Jesus Christ. That's the only one who's worthy of recognition in in this crowd. And so God the Father sets God the Son apart in verse 35. And what we see in verse 36 is this. When this all happened, it says, Moses was gone, Elijah was gone, all the glory was gone, and only Jesus remained. Jesus was left alone. And I think the reason why Jesus was left alone is because the only thing that we really need to see and have is Jesus at the end of the day. Yes, the moment was great. Yes, having godly men around us is great. But at the end of the day, What we need, what needs to remain, is Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Hebrews 3 talks about how Moses is is, is great, but also Jesus is the greater Moses. That he leads people to the greater exodus. Elijah, he was a great prophet, but Malachi foretells us that he was simply a forerunner. A person to prepare the way of the Lord. Peter wanted to make a tent, a tabernacle, a dwelling place for for, for Jesus, but John actually says in his gospel in John 1 14 that the word Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us, that we have seen his glory, glory of the one and only Father, full of grace and full of truth. The Christian life is not about just cherishing a moment, it's about following a person, Jesus Christ. So many of us, we are so caught up in a moment, we feel like, man, I need to have another high moment in my life. I need to have another encounter in my life. If God just becomes a little bit more real in my life, if I just experience something a little bit more powerful, a little bit more heavy dose of God's glory, then I'll be changed and transformed. And what the Bible reminds us today is that the Christian life is not about having this God moment. It's recognizing that Jesus Christ is the God that you need, that he's the Savior, the Messiah, that he is it. So Moses gone, Elijah gone, glory gone. The only one who remains is Jesus Christ. So here's the main idea of today's text and really the summary of the first half of the Gospel of Luke. Jesus is God. He's it. So so listen to him. Listen to him. So many of us, we want to just dwell in a moment, dwell in a, a spiritual high moment, and yet what the Bible tells us is that the reason why God gives you those moments is so that you can have a clear understanding of who Jesus is and so that you would listen and obey. What Peter had to do at that moment was not build tents for Jesus. He ought to understand that the one that he was following all along was worthy of, of, of his devotion and his time and his, his giving. So what we see is when you are confused, when you are disappointed, you have to remind yourself who Jesus is and what he came to do, that he is really God and you can trust his plan. Just like the Father reminded the disciples, he is reminding us this morning that Jesus, he is my beloved son, that he is my chosen one. And so listen to him, follow him. I know the road ahead doesn't seem that pleasant or or beautiful. I know the Christian life doesn't seem that appealing with all the denying and all the taking up the cross daily. Like, But at the end of the day, just trust that Jesus is God and you can follow him with confidence. 
So instead of lingering in a moment, look to Jesus. But there's something even better here, I think. You know, the transfiguration is really kind of the peak of Jesus' public ministry in Galilee. But the actual peak in Jesus' ministry is what? The crucifixion. But there's a lot of similarities and comparisons that you can make with the transfiguration, today's passage, and the crucifixion, the cross. The transfiguration and crucifixion, both cases, they happen on a mountain. Transfiguration, it happened in a private setting. The crucifixion happened in a public setting. The transfiguration, Jesus was surrounded by two saints. The crucifixion, Jesus was surrounded by two sinners, the thieves. The transfiguration, Jesus was clothed with white clothing, clean clothing. The crucifixion, Jesus was left dirty and naked. The transfiguration was a display of the glory of Jesus Christ. Jesus was covered in his glory. In the crucifixion, Jesus was covered in blood. In the transfiguration, Jesus was recognized as the Son of God. The Father says, this is my Son. He's the one. But on the crucifixion, Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In a matter of just a couple months, Jesus goes from this high point, the transfiguration, to the lowest point, the crucifixion. And it should make you wonder why. As glorious as today's passage is, and we want to get a taste of this glory, I think this passage is reminding us of the glory that Jesus had to lay down in order to go to the cross. That he was willing to come down from his throne, to lay down his majesty, his splendor and glory. It's not because he is weak, he is unable, but Philippians 2 actually says that he willingly laid himself down, became a servant. He was obedient to the point of death. Although he was equal with God, he didn't count equality with God, a thing to be grasped. And he submitted to the point of death so that you and I can have a way to be with the Father once again. And the good news is this. When Jesus laid down his glory for sinful people like you and me, It says in the book of Revelation, when he comes back to redeem his people, to reclaim his people, every description in in Revelation 6 and 7, Revelation 19, any time you see saints and believers appear in the book of Revelation, notice their clothing, that they're wearing white. Now, I apologize if you don't like white. You're not the biggest fan of white clothing. But just know in heaven, you will be wearing white, uh, <laughs> right? Uh, and it's a sign that although you are not holy, that you are not righteous, that Jesus clothed you with his righteousness, with his splendor, majesty, and glory. And how does that happen? Because he was willing to lay down his glory, go to the cross so that you and I they can be made righteous for his glory. And that's the beautiful reality of the gospel. So instead of chasing a moment today, Instead of wanting just a glimpse of God's glory, can we just ponder upon the cross and the glory that Jesus laid down to make a way for you and me? He wants us to live in his glory, to follow him, to trust him. He is Christ, that he is God. You can trust him with all that you have. So although it doesn't make full sense at this moment, trust who he is, trust God's word, and in faith, deny yourself, take up your own cross daily, and follow him. Amen? Let's pray.